All right, if you could turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are back in Philippians after uh, vacations and everything else. Uh, we're picking up kind of where we left off. Uh, so, verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility account others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look also... Uh, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these ancient words that we've read this morning. I ask that we would be able to come with open hearts. I ask that uh, you'd be changing each of us by these words through the work of the Holy Spirit in and among us. Work uh, that we might know that these words aren't for other people, but they are for us. That we each have need for not just these words, but we also have need to change. So be gracious to us because of Christ this morning. Amen. Charles Simeon, <clears throat> it's not a name that many of you are probably familiar with, uh, but in 1782... Uh, he was called to be the pastor of Trinity Church in England. He had wanted to be that pastor for quite a while, but the problem was is that the people of that church didn't want him to be their pastor. Uh, they wanted the assistant curate to be elevated after the retirement of their former pastor. And so they didn't quite respond well when the bishop had appointed Charles Simeon, to be their pastor. One of the oddities of that particular congregation is that they had the morning service, but then an afternoon service, and the pastor was in charge of the morning service, but the people were in charge of the afternoon service. And so, because they had charge of that, for five years, they did not allow Charles Simeon to lecture in the afternoon service, but gave that responsibility to the man they actually wanted to be their pastor. And when that man finally left, for two years, they continued not to let Charles Simeon lecture in the afternoon service. As if that wasn't enough, when uh, he decided to start an evening service, the church wardens decided to lock the doors so that no one could come in to hear Charles Simeon preach the Word of God. At one point, he was able to get a locksmith to remove the locks, but the next week he found that the locks have, had been changed and once again were bolted so that none could come and hear the Word. As if that wasn't enough. This was a time in which there were pews, and those pews had doors. And they would charge 
pew rents. And so, uh, you know, we, we have the Sally chair over there. Uh, Sally does not pay extra for her chair. We, we let her have that chair out of compassion for her because uh, the, the new chairs bothered her neck from the accident. And so there's a Sally chair. Okay. Uh, well, then there were personal family pews, but you paid for them. That was not out of compassion or mercy. And so you had your assigned place to seat, so to speak, because that's the pew that you paid for. So a visitor coming in uh, would have to make sure they navigated all of that correctly. Uh, don't worry, we don't have that problem aside from the Sally chair, which stands out from the rest of the chairs. Well, the people locked their pews so no one could use them. They didn't come, but neither could the visitors. And so he would preach to people who were standing or seated in chairs that he had kind of dragged out from other parts of the building. And this went on for years. But the ministry of Charles Simeon grew despite all of this. But eventually he would outlive the people (laughs) that tried to prevent him from being there because he had a ministry in that church for 54 years. He was not undaunted or he was not overcome by the opposition that he experienced. It's kind of an interesting story and and I came across that in one of John Piper's uh, historical volumes and it's very interesting, uh, Charles Simeon's perseverance. But I'm not really hitting on the perseverance today. I really want to hit on the problem of disunity. In our own presbytery, uh, there is a church in another town that had a conflict that lasted the course of two pastorates. The conflict was not initially with the pastors, but it was more the, the deacons and the elders couldn't get along. And uh, I'm glad that's not the case here. Uh, but they had this prolonged conflict, and it caused... Uh, there to be a commission during the, the ministry of the first pastor, and it, it looked like everything had sort of been resolved, but then shortly thereafter, the pastor ended up leaving. And they didn't inform the new pastor about this problem that had existed, and, and he found himself in the midst of this and unable to do anything in the midst of this, and that church eventually closed because the acrimony and conflict was so great. And so within our own presbytery, we've lost a church recently because conflict that couldn't be resolved. We've had another church that had the staffing almost whittled to the bone and the membership dropped uh, severely because of conflict. A third church experienced a, a great amount of conflict and it got very close to destroying that church if I asked the pastor today, and actually I talked with him a lot this past weekend at Presbytery, uh, he said the thing he, the mistake, one of the mistakes he made was he waited too long to ask for help from Presbytery. But thankfully, Presbytery was helpful, and that church is much healthier now than it has been in a long time. And it's starting to grow again and prosper again. But all that to say, conflict is not something that happens far, far away in in an ancient time like 18th century England. It's something that happens in Arizona, in the PCA, in our churches. 
The big question that should arise for us as we hear about these stories is how can churches experiencing conflict begin to move and experience unity? And Paul is writing what he writes here at the, at the beginning of chapter 2 in Philippians because he's writing to a church that is experiencing conflict. And he wants them to experience unity again. And so uh, these words are not just theoretical to the Philippians, uh, but they are addressing a specific need that was going on in their church and a specific need that no church is ever exempt from. So let's begin with the fact that the gospel gives us all the same gifts in Christ Jesus as we think of verse 1. The gospel gives us all the same gifts in Christ. He starts this with so or therefore, a word that means that in light of something I've just said. And what did he just say? If we go back, uh, that's why I put my last sermon in Philippians 1 and on, online again. Um, <clears throat> He's going back to verse 27. Only let the manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's referring back to that call to live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom in light of the fact that you're supposed to stand together, stand firm together against the outward opposition and the persecution that you're experiencing in light of the the fact that you're supposed to be like a phalanx, shoulder to shoulder, pointed in the same direction, moving in unison in order to repel those who would seek to destroy the church. In light of that, Paul shifts from the outward threat to the inward threat. He shifts from the pressure of persecution to the consternation of conflict. But what's interesting in this is that this is not like what we read in, in 1 Corinthians. Okay? In 1 Corinthians, Paul brought the hammer down. He was clear and explicit about the, the problem of divisions within the church. Here it's much more gentle. He doesn't really come out and, and explicitly mention the conflict until he gets to chapter 4 with Judea and Syntyche. But that's what's going on. Paul is gently addressing this problem of conflict within the church at Philippi. And how he directs it, I mean, how he addresses it begins with, oddly enough, a fourfold blessing of the gospel. It, it doesn't start with words of admonition. It doesn't start with words of rebuke. It doesn't start with words of condemnation. It starts with words of encouragement. And he goes through this fourfold thing and it follows this pattern as if it's a question, if if there is any, and if the, the rhetorical answer is, of course there is some. And so that's how I'm proceeding. I'm assuming there is each of these fourfold things. That there is encouragement in Christ. 
that because of their union with Jesus Christ, they experience the encouragement of the gospel. That, that word of encouragement there can have some nuances. The main idea is the idea of, of instilling others with courage. It can refer to the idea of <coughs> exhortation, uh, which is a little more authoritative. But we recognize, or should recognize, that there is some encouragement as well as exhortation that comes in our relationship to Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, I think a good clear place is from Romans 15 to help us understand this. Paul says about the Scriptures in Romans 15, For whatever was written in former days, okay, those ancient words, okay, was written for our instruction. Not just their instruction, our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And so there's a couple things that are very clear or should be very clear to us from that Romans 15 passage. And just as we see, uh, as I was praying earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God is the God of all comfort. God is also, it says here, the God of endurance and encouragement. And so the endurance that Charles Simeon experienced, he had because of his union with Jesus Christ, who is the God of all endurance. It was only because he had a living relationship, a union with that Jesus, that he was able to endure despite the great opposition of the people, or many of the people within that congregation. How do we receive that? It's not just a download, but we see that the encouragement of the Scriptures were intended to receive the encouragement of Christ through the Scriptures. And so if you're someone who's in need of encouragement, I encourage you not just to talk to a friend, but also to go to the Scriptures to receive the encouragement of Jesus Christ. Go because you believe in Jesus Christ, because you trust in Jesus Christ, and this is what He offers you so that you may be encouraged. Christ strengthens us through this union and through His Word which was given to us. Not only is there encouragement in Christ, but we see that there is comfort from love. And of course, when we think of love in the New Testament, there is nothing greater than the love of Christ revealed in His atoning sacrifice for us and our sin. That that is the ultimate display of God's love for us, is Jesus bearing our sin. And that is intended to comfort us when we're in trouble. That, that's intended to be the greatest source of comfort because it reminds us that God does not forsake us. He does not abandon us. He does not accuse us in such a way. He may convict us of our sin, but He's not casting us out for our part because Christ 
has borne the wrath of God for us. And that should comfort us. Uh, That it is not all over because we've sinned again. Thirdly, the participation or fellowship in the Spirit. It's because of Jesus who now sits enthroned uh, at the right hand of God sends forth His Holy Spirit. And so we are a spiritual community, that one that has been gathered by the Spirit, one that is empowered by the Spirit, and we have fellowship with one another at just as much as we have fellowship with Jesus Christ because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. These Philippians, and we too, have joined the heavenly and earthly communities of God. They were not to think that they were alone in the midst of this opposition, but they were to remember that this fellowship that they experience is one that has been freely given to them because of Jesus. It is not a fellowship or participation that they have earned by their goodness or their steadfastness. And the fourth thing that he mentions to them is that they have affection and sympathy or compassion. Affection referring to the bowels, the, the, what was understood to be is the, the source of feelings and emotions. And then the particular emotion or feeling, whatever we want to call that. Compassion. That they have received the affection and compassion of God. God who comforts us. God who is the God of all comfort, as I've mentioned already. And we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may He comfort your hearts. Notice that. God is the the God who has given us this eternal comfort in Christ. And yet, Paul is asking that that same God would now also comfort the Thessalonians. Comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and deed. It's similar to what William Gurnall says in his uh, classic work, The Christian in Complete Armor. Every day we need a fresh draft of the love of God. And so when we're suffering, it's not just that we, okay, think of the comfort you received in the past, but we also have comfort in the present. We get a fresh store of comfort and, and, and compassion in accordance with our need, when we approach the mercy seat. Part of what this means is that as uh, Jesus was the promised Messiah, we see uh, uh, Jesus taking Isaiah 42 and applying it to His ministry. And part of what Isaiah 42 says is that a bruised reed He will not break, a smoldering wick He will not put out. Think of that for a moment. These are people who are needy. People who are broken. Who have problems. Who feel overwhelmed and as if they're, they're smoldering, they're about to go out. And Jesus is one who has compassion upon them. 
Jesus is one who does not say, well, it's bruised, let's just cut it and toss it away. Oh, it's smoldering, let's just end this now and get it over with. But rather, he pours out his compassion. This is very good news for us. For many of us are bruised and smoldering. Many of you have been touched by death lately. Whether it's a family member, a friend, we as a congregation have been touched by that uh, three times in the last year. We have had members pass away. Grieving doesn't happen in a week, doesn't happen in a, in a memorial service, but it continues for a period of time. And there are many here who are smoldering. And uh, perhaps we need to own that a little more than we have been. Perhaps that's one of my failings as a pastor. Jesus is not like me, however. Jesus continues to come and minister to the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks. He continues to come and render compassion towards His people who are sorrowing and suffering, who are experiencing grief and affliction. Here's the deal, though. I I want you to not separate these things, but remember uh, that all of these benefits are received by faith in the same Jesus Christ, who is all of these things for His people. And so we, we can say, if you have Christ, you have encouragement. If you have Christ, you have love. If you have Christ, you have fellowship. If you have Christ, you have compassion from God. And sometimes it's, it's mediated through His people, but surely it is mediated through His Word. All of these come directly from Christ, but sometimes He does use other people as well as His Word to give them to us. And so, gospel partners are united in the gospel benefits that they receive through faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, these gospel gifts create unity of mind and love. Really, the second verse that's there. And I want us to keep this in mind. When I'm using that, that phrase, gospel gifts, I'm not talking about what we, sometimes people think of spiritual gifts. I'm thinking of the benefits of the gospel and, you know, I'm just trying to be, you know, a pastor and alliterate. That's not really what we're supposed to do, but it's helpful for you. So, so Paul moves from these gospel gifts, these benefits of the gospel, these gospel indicatives, and now he begins to talk about these gospel imperatives, these gospels as a result, therefore, kinds of things. How we're supposed to live because we've received these benefits from Jesus Christ. And it sounds strange because the first thing he says is, Complete my joy. (laughs) 
That's not what I would have been expecting. Complete my joy. That word complete is the same one that he used in chapter 1 when he talked about, may their joy be complete. No, sorry, their, not their joy. May their love, he was praying for them, may their love be complete or abounding. Okay? Same word. Uh, may his love, or may, sorry, may Paul's joy, which already exists, uh, but it's not as full as it ought to be, and may it be brought to that fullness. Okay? <coughs> and they have the power, apparently, to bring that joy to its fullness. It's similar to what John says in his third epistle, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's what Paul wants to hear. That they're walking in the truth. But he knows that in, that in some ways they are, but in other ways they aren't. And so that's part of why his joy, while present, is not as full as it could be. Okay. They could make this joy abound by, by living as the gospel intends them to live. One of the interesting things about Presbytery was, um, Tears. One of the pastors in our presbytery was in tears of joy as he related how his son, who was rebellious and had walked away from the faith for a time, had come back. And he was overwhelmed with joy. Because his, far, his son, who had gone to a far country, even though he hadn't gone very far geographically, uh, his son had come home. His son still annoyed him. He, he joked about how his son dresses like a homeless person. But his son was at home in Christ. And that's what mattered. And as parents, we, we worry about a lot of things with regard to our kids, but the most important thing, the one that brings us the most joy, is, is to learn uh, that our children are walking with God. And that's what Paul was really focused on. Are you walking with God in this? The implication, of course, is that his joy was not complete, it was not abounding, and it was because they were not living in gospel unity with one another. They were fragmented in some way. The point being that the gospel of peace should produce peace among his people. That if we believe in the gospel of peace, we should be at peace with one another. And in fact, it is that peace that we experience that should commend that same gospel to other people. To be able to say, yes, we have disagreements, but we're able to work them out in Jesus Christ. We're not blowing up all the time like some other organizations. And so, Paul, in sort of laying this out for them, has sort of a fourfold response to the fourfold blessing uh, that he had already mentioned that they had received. 
They're to be of the same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. He kind of lays out. And some of this sounds a little repetitive, uh, but he's just, he's, he's pressing in these realities. They are intended to give what they have received from Jesus Christ. Caught up in the ideas of same mind and same love. Uh, that which God gave us, a mind and a love that shows us compassion and encouragement we're meant to have towards other people in our midst. We see the unity that is there with same, same, one accord. It's reminiscent of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul would later say, therefore maintain the bond of peace in the Holy Spirit. The gospel is no good if it's only for you and not for everyone else in the room. They are to be of one mind precisely because of the exhortation they have received. It is intended to have renewed their minds. And part of what that means is that we're to submit our minds to Christ, which is really hard. Because we like to think original thoughts and selfish thoughts. We'll get more to that in a moment. But you notice here, it's not just truth, but also love. We're to to love as people who've, who've been loved even though we were unlovable. And so truth is to be spoken in love. When there is no love, the truth is harsh and cold. It's a cruelty. Just like when there's no truth, love is like a jellyfish. It has nothing to hold it up and it just flops around and does nobody any good. So truth and love are not meant to be at odds with each other, but they're hand in hand precisely because of the nature of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That is not in tension with God is love. You create heresy if you divide those statements because both are true of God and both are intended to be true of us. People of truth as well as people of love. And so, we are also to be in accord with one another, in agreement uh, with one another. And that doesn't mean every little tittle and jot and comma and sentence uh, kind of thing, but recognizing that while we may have the same theological commitments... There are times when we may have different application of those theological commitments. For instance, in the Reformed community, we talk about the RPW, 
And there's a couple of you who know what I mean. For those of you who don't, the regulative principle of worship. That is, that the Bible regulates how we are intended to worship. That uh, it, it gives us the elements of worship. And we're not to uh, be innovative in that. <coughs> now, some people think <clears throat> that the regulative principle of worship means that they are to only sing psalms. Okay? And they're to do it without instruments. That's what some people think. That's what some Presbyterians think. As we look at the life of John Calvin, who is one of the people that expressed the regulative principle of worship uh, in contrast to um, kind of how Luther understood worship, okay, and that process of reform, we, under, we, we recognize, as I mentioned, I think it was last week, uh, that John Calvin, while he didn't believe that instruments should be in the, uh, the worship service of our churches, he did go beyond the Psalms and allowed his people to sing other things that were in Scripture, like the Ten Commandments, uh, Simeon's Song, uh, the Lord's Prayer, as well as something that wasn't in the Bible, the Apostles' Creed. Same principle, different application, so we can disagree, have honest disagreements about the applications of the same principle. And we should do so charitably. As a denomination in particular. So, um, unity therefore is not uniformity as some in our denomination seem to cry out for. It is not uniformity of thought. It is not uniformity of practice. But it's agreeing agreeing upon basic principles and purpose. One of the things I I listened to on my way up to Flagstaff this week was um, a GA uh, General Assembly seminar that I... It was at the same time as something else I wanted to do, so I bought the DVD, uh, the CD, and it was... It's about uh, healthy leadership teams. So I was listening to that on my way up. And uh, one of the things this guy talked about was clarity of purpose. And I thought, oh, boy. So, well, you know what? I know what? I know what my purpose is. I remember it from my candidating sermon in this pulpit, in a smaller building, from Colossians 1, proclaiming him that I might present people as mature in Christ. Uh, that That is the purpose that you called me under, and that is the purpose I still hold to, and I'm still going to try and implement in this congregation. And so in case anyone forgot about that, I thought I'd remind you, and I'll probably put it on our Facebook page. <laughs> if I can, if I can uh, dig through the sermon archives online, uh, I'll put it up there. But I just want you to know, remind you of, of the, the purpose I, I see of the ministry here at Desert Springs. Okay? And so we have to be careful that we do not make differences in application into mountains that separate us. One of the commentaries that I read was uh, by a guy who is a professor 
but then was a, a missionary for a while um, in Africa. I think it was Nigeria. And he noted the very different ways in, in which the churches in, in those two places resolved conflict or disagreements. In the West, he, it was Robert's Rules. They followed Robert's Rules of Order. And, you know, they made motions and substitute motions and do all those things that drive me crazy at Presbytery. Whereas he noticed in Nigeria, they worked for consensus. And it, it was a much longer process because you're, you're trying to, you know, get everyone to a, a, agree on enough. And that's the way I like to work. To, to move towards consensus. And one of the, the reasons, one of the things that this man said as he thought about this was that oftentimes it's the Robert rule, Robert's rules of order that creates so much of the disunity because of hurt feelings. And we've seen that. There, were, there was someone who lost a vote in a congregational meeting here who left. Now, he swore up and down to me that that wasn't the reason he was leaving, and yet all roads seemed to lead to that. He kept bringing that up. Why? Because that was a hurt that he had that wasn't resolved. And yet, by not being honest, it couldn't be. That happens. And sometimes it's the way in which we make decisions. But sometimes we can't take forever to make decisions, so I understand that. So unity in the gospel benefits, produces unity in our gospel partnership. Heart, mind, and will, when we're consciously aware of those benefits and seeking to live in light of those benefits. Thirdly, Christ creates a humble people out of self-focused people. I mentioned already that uh, Paul is more uh, gentle than he was to the Corinthians, but he's still honest about their problem. They show signs of the old man in Adam that need to be put to death through faith and repentance. And so, he encourages them to reject selfish ambition. It's kind of an odd, uh, it's a f- one word in the Greek, and it really re- refers to partisanship or uh, the idea of having factions or politicking, using worldly means to kind of get your way. What was happening at Trinity Church during the ministry of Charles Simeon and those people were using worldly means to force this man to make him so miserable that he would just up and leave, and they would get, be able to get their way, which was have that young man be their new pastor. The Apostle Paul reminded the Galatians that they were called to freedom, only they were not to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, and that's the problem. Selfish ambition doesn't serve anybody but you. For while the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's his warning. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so that, that partisanship is, is seen as basically like one animal 
biting itself and tearing itself to pieces. Not a healthy sort of situation. Martin Luther commented that I am more afraid of Pope self than of the Pope in Rome and all his cardinals. That that selfish ambition, that need to get our way, is more dangerous than the Pope and all of his cardinals. He also says, basically, reject conceit or empty glory. Because really, none of us have anything to be conceited about. (laughs) Maybe with respect to one another, but not before God. That we're, we're to end our, the quest for our own glory instead of Christ's glory. We're to put that baby to death. Because it needs to be put to death. And by that I mean our own glory. That's metaphorical, just in case. That unfortunately we are still curved inward. We're still focused on ourselves. We're still seeking to get our own way and to uh, get our own preferences. In other words, we're still sinners. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer notes, the cross of Jesus Christ destroys all pride because it reveals you as sinner, but it also reveals the incredible love of God for sinners, as we've mentioned already. We must remember that we are to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, as Paul says in uh, Romans 12, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We must remember that Christ died for those sins, referring to our conceit and our selfish ambition, uh, that uh, we're that wicked but we're also that loved. Uh, Yesterday, Stu referred to Jack Miller's uh, phrase, the first part of it anyway, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. Second part of it is, cheer up, Christ loves you more than you think. So in place of this selfish ambition, in place of this uh, conceit, he says that they were to put on humility, which he defines in this context as counting others as more significant than yourself, valuing other people, not thinking that it all begins and ends with you. So we see this reflects what we find in, say, Proverbs 18. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, But humility comes before honor. What we see in the Proverbs, which is repeated in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5, from which I'm going to quote, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for, (coughs) now according to the Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God fights with the proud, but God is compassionate toward the humble. And part of how this manifests itself is that Paul says, look out 
not just for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. You are to consider the needs of others, consider the desires, legitimate desires of others. One way in which this kind of plays out is when Amy and I are going to go out to eat, and I go, where do you want to go, dear? Because as a pastor, I go out to eat at a lot of restaurants because I meet with people. She doesn't. And so instead of me going, we're going where I want to go, I go, honey, where do you want to go? And she almost inevitably says, I don't know, dear. Where do you want to go? (laughs) That's why my head is so flat from hitting the wall. Um, (coughs) But we're deferring to one another. We're not demanding our own way from one another. And sometimes that can be exasperating in that funny little instance there. But, There is, there's a lack of, um, I have to get my own way. At least in that part of our relationship. And that's a good thing. It's meant to be seen in leadership. The way we do things in this congregation is not perfectly lined up with my preferences. But because we, as leaders, we have to consider the interests of the congregation. Uh, that's part of how we should be making decisions. Not the only thing, but a part of it. This is not easy. It's not all done at once because as sinners, it is a daily struggle to live what we believe. But because we believe this, we're invited to the waltz. We're invited to confess the mess of pride and partisanship that resides in our own hearts. We're called to receive these gospel benefits of encouragement, love, fellowship, and comfort through faith in Jesus Christ. And we're called to walk united in the faith by the power of the Holy Spirit who has been freely given to us. And so we should confess... Receive and walk. Confess. Receive and walk. Confess. Receive and walk. Let's pray. Father, we confess that problems aren't limited to England. (laughs) And they're not limited to the 18th century. But problems are in our own hearts. And it's not as profound as there there are situations that have happened in our own presbytery. But there's always the danger. It's always there because sin lurks, waiting to pounce. Satan lurks like a roaring lion waiting to see which congregation he can devour. And so we pray for the gospel benefits to produce gospel unity in increasing measure so that we are safe, so that we're able to do ministry. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.